0: man coverage this is the pft p.m podcast and now your host mike florio
1: it's scheduled day edition of the pft p.m podcast by the time you listen to this the schedule may be out it's coming out at 8 p.m eastern on thursday night a lot of the games already have leaked i don't know whether the nfl likes that or doesn't like that the entire jet schedule is out I think anytime something is done and it begins to be disseminated to the various teams, somebody's going to blab and the games are going to come out. But again, by the time you hear this, it may all be out anyway. They're ripping the sheet off the thing in less than four hours. So I'm not going to say anything about the schedule. We'll have some schedule reaction on PFT Live on Friday morning. Any leftovers that may come up. On Friday afternoon. And this may indeed be the first week that we do the PFTPM podcast all five days. I don't think we've done it all five days before. I'm not sure. Remember, we had a Saturday edition because there was a Mark Garrigus interview. Maybe we have done all five. I don't know. I know this. Brandon Marshall's out in New York. And this is one that we all kind of expected. Same concerns arise as it related to Des Bryant. Giants squatted on him longer than they should have. Brandon Marshall didn't have anything in his contract that forced an earlier decision. Both sides to blame for this thing taking so long. Is it a precursor to signing Des Bryant? That's really the question. That's the reaction that a lot of people have. Well, Brandon Marshall's out, Des Bryant's in. Because my thought when Des Bryant made it clear he'd like to play for the Giants, and apparently Brandon Marshall posted on social media, sorry, no room here and deleted it, oops, Des Bryant would take the spot that Brandon Marshall has because they otherwise have Odell Beckham Jr., Sterling Shepard at receiver, tight end at Evan Ingram, maybe Saquon Barkley at running back, Eli Manning throwing the passes. There's a lot of momentum for Saquon Barkley being the number two pick by the Giants. Who knows what they're going to do? There's a the thought that Eli Manning's got two years left Unless they really love a quarterback at two, if there's a guy they really think will be the guy, wait till next year or the year after that to draft the next Eli Manning. For now, Brandon Marshall looking for yet another team. A guy who has numbers to put him in the Hall of Fame conversation. Has never played in a playoff game. Entered the league, I think as a fourth round pick of the Broncos in 2006, the year they moved up to get Jay Cutler. He's been with the Broncos, he's been with the Dolphins, he's been with the Bears, he's been with the Giants, and I think I'm missing somebody. He's been traded like three times. Who am I missing? It feels like he's been with more teams than the Broncos, Dolphins, Bears, and Giants, I feel like there's more than that. It's probably going to be fairly obvious. Well, if there were only a device that I had at my fingertips where I could, while I'm talking to you, multitask, type in Brandon Marshall, Brandon Marshall, NFL.com. That's the Google search. That brings up the pages. Here it is. Marshall Receiver, New York Giants. Let's see who I missed. Broncos, Dolphins, Bears, Jets. How could I forget the Jets? And then he stayed in New York as a member of the Giants. He had 1,500 yards with the Jets in 2015. He's got 12,215 receiving yards. 959 catches. 82 touchdowns. He's had a great career. He's 34 years old. Pittsburgh native. Now back on the market looking for another job. Thursday also since PFT Live ended. Two new uniforms were unveiled. The Jacksonville Jaguars uniforms had leaked a couple of months ago. I haven't gone back and pulled them up, but it looks like they were the same uniforms as the ones that previously leaked. Regardless, I love them. The main feature that I love, farewell to the god-awful two-tone helmet. I never liked it. It's a testament to how good they were last year, because last year, the two-tone helmets started to look less hideous because the Jaguars were good. One of the Jaguars players was on the show at one point, defending the uniforms, and basically said, hey, now that we're good, they're looking good. And that's true. If you're a good team, you can slap anything. On the players. If they're a good team, it starts looking better. But instantly, these new uniforms look better. The Jaguars uniforms. The white on white, the teal, the black, but the helmet. Oh my gosh, the helmet. I have a side-by-side tweet of the old helmet and the new helmet. Is that black mat? Please get rid of the mat. The mat has run its course. The mat is more outdated than the Numbers with the shadow effect. Remember that back in the 90s? And the 49ers embraced that. And then everybody had shadowed numbers for a while. And then the Broncos had the jerseys with the panel down the side. And the Vikings had that like eight years later. The Vikings pick up on all the fads too late. They got the mad helmet too. Get rid of the mad helmets. The Jaguars black mat with the mustard on the back end. Hideous. The new helmet, spectacular. And this all goes back to Tom Coughlin. Somebody told me last year, after Coughlin had been there a month, yeah, the helmets are gone. Coughlin hates the helmets. They're gone. Kudos to Tom Coughlin. And please, no more two-tone helmets. Now, the Dolphins have new uniforms as well. Their logos are the same. I think what they basically did was they took their throwback uniform And they've embraced all of it but the logo. Just put the old logo back on the helmet. Just admit that that's ugly and the old helmet looks great. They've never done anything with that new logo. The old logo was fine. Sometimes change just for the sake of change. And this is why I don't like Nike being the apparel provider of the NFL. Unless they want to become a sponsor of the PFTPM podcast. Then I love Nike. For now, though, I don't like that Nike keeps cajoling teams into changing their uniforms. Change it, change here, change this, change back, Jaguars, change twice. What about the people that spend their hard-earned money on those jerseys, especially the nice jersey, not the one where you only have a certain number of washes before the number starts coming off the replica jersey, the real jersey, between free agency and the Nikefication of the NFL. My goodness. All right. We got a couple of interviews today. We have two in part because I got so caught up in this damn thing yesterday, I didn't play one of them. So I'm going to play the one now that I should have played yesterday, and then I'm going to talk a little bit more, and I'll play the other interview. And then I'll answer your questions. And I don't understand this PFTPM posse phenomenon, but I sure hope it translates into more people listening to this thing, which translates into more money or any money for the PFTPM podcast. I'll explain that coming up for now. Former LSU running back. Darius Geis joins the program okay joining us now one of the top running backs in the 2018 draft class from LSU a football factory in the south he is running back Darius Geis Darius welcome to the program how are you pal hey
2: thank you for having me man
1: well it's great to have you and it's great to talk to you and you will be in Texas next Thursday night for the draft why was it important for you to be there in person and experience it all firsthand
2: well, you know, it's, it's one of those things to where, you know, it's it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, you know, that not many guys get invited to experience. And, you know, when I got the call from Gil Brandt and got invited to the draft, it was it was like a dream come true. You know, there's no way I'm going to turn that man down and turn down his opportunity. So it, it just means a lot for me and my family to be there and experience it.
1: I talked to Derwin James from Florida State recently. He said he's got four or five different suits picked out for Thursday night. How narrow is your range of choices for the big night? I oh only got one suit picked out. <laughs> now, here's the thing. And and here's the reality. We, we don't know where anybody is going to be drafted. But if we listen to the experts, they got Saquon Barkley as the first running back. And then after that... Darius Geis, where does he fit? Where does he fall? I've seen a very broad range of possible landing spots. For you, wh- wh- when do you start when you're in the green room and the picks are going? Do you have a number in mind where after that you're going to start thinking, man, this should have happened by now?
2: Oh uh, No, that's, that's, that's not really the mindset I go into it with. You know, um, you know I'm, I'm very patient. You know, I know it's God's plan. You know, so I don't really, you know, get impatient and, and, get, and get worried and get down. You know, um, mm-hmm. I know everything. I'm a big firm believer on everything happens for a reason. So whether I get picked, you know, 10 or, or 12 or 14, whatever it may be, you know, it, it's all God's plan. And whoever drafts me, whoever drafts me they will get a, a great player and a great person.
1: Does it bug you that pretty much everyone says Saquon Barkley is by far the top running back in this class?
2: It, it doesn't bother me. He's shown that he's a great player, time in and time out, you know, and I have as well. You know that that's all I can leave it with. We're both great players.
1: Give me your pitch as to why a team should draft you instead of him.
2: Well, I can tell you why a team should draft me. Not really, you know, instead of him. You know, whoever whoever drafts Saquon is going to get a great back and a great and a great person as well. You know, um, I'm I'm just a, I'm just a very physical, powerful, passionate. Runner and I'm I'm a competitor. Uh, I'm am a team leader. You know I'm a guy that's gonna you know change the environment of the organization I will be in. You know I'm a guy that loves, eats, sleeps, and breathes football. And, you know I'm I'm just a guy that's all about football and all about the team.
1: When you say you'll change the environment, give me an idea. Give me a tangible way that when Darius Geis walks through the door, things are going to be different.
2: It, it could be the meeting room, the weight room. You know, um, the football field for practice, it's just the energy I bring. You know, me me bouncing around all happy, got my big smile on, you know, yelling, hyped up, ready to go. <laughs> you know, get people going early.
1: As we get closer to the draft and you get closer to reaching the next level of the sport, the reality is you'll have to perform. As you think about your skill set and you think about areas where you need to improve, where do you think you need to improve the most in order to thrive in the NFL?
2: Uh, just, just improve on being more of a student of the game. You know, because, you know, I don't have to worry about college with school anymore and football. You know, it's just strictly football. So just managing my time, you know, taking care of my body, that's the main thing. And, you know, um, getting, getting in that playbook, being a student of the game.
1: Darius, there's been a trend in recent years for NFL teams to use multiple running backs in order to keep them healthy, in order to extend their careers. Now, individually, running backs like to be the workhorse. They like to be the guy who has the ball all the time. Where do you fall on that spectrum?
2: I want to be the guy that the coaches trust with the ball. You know, I, I want to be the guy that, you know, on on third and ten, I stay in, I stay in, I stay on the field. You know, I want to be the guy on third and one that they trust
0: to get a ball to and get the first down.
2: You know, I, I want to be the guy that that's helping win. I want to be the guy that's on the field and being a playmaker. You know, it doesn't matter how much I play uh, this and that; league, that doesn't really matter. I just want to be a guy that they can trust and count on.
1: What's the best advice, Darius, that you've gotten from anyone as you've prepared for this next step in your career?
2: Just really being patient, you know, and, and understanding that, you know, the speed of the game is going to change. It's going to be a lot faster, you know, so just, you know, just you know, mentally and physically. You know, so you, you just got to be mentally strong. That's, that's one of the things I've been getting. You got to be mentally strong in this game.
1: You know, I've watched plenty of Darius guys' highlights, and you've got some great kick return skills. There's been so much talk recently about the kickoff return being minimized and maybe going away. What do you think of the possibility of the kickoff eventually being taken out of the game completely?
2: I don't know how I feel about that. You know, you start the game with, with special teams. You know, it's going, to be, it's going to be very different and very awkward, you know, to see a game start with no kickoff return, <laughs> a kickoff. You know, like that, that thats what set the sets the tone for the whole game. And I—I I just feel like it's going to change the atmosphere. It's going to change the environment. I feel like it's going to change the everything, the whole integrity of of the beginning of the game. Even halftime, it could be halftime. Like it's just going to change everything.
1: And when you talk about the environment of the game and the way that it feels, you were at LSU, one of the rare and unique experiences in college football, and you got to pick LSU. D- does it ever cross your mind that? You know, maybe I should get to pick where I'm going to play at the next level. They shouldn't pick me. I should pick them the same way I picked my college.
2: Well, I, I, feel, I feel like I, I I like this process better. You know, it, you know, go, going throughout the whole process of visiting teams and stuff, it kind of feels like recruitment. You know what I mean? But at the end of the day, you know, they they paying you millions of dollars. You know, you you can't just choose which pick you want to go and say, "Oh, I want I want to go the third pick." And get this much money, and the team don't think that you're worth that much or that value, you know. So I, I feel like I feel like they have a good little skill the way they're doing stuff right now.
1: You mentioned the visits you made. Who all have you have you seen? Uh, who all have you visited in advance of the draft?
2: Uh, I visited four teams. Um, I was with uh, Baltimore, the Eagles, um, New England, and Philly.
1: Do you get a sense that there's any one team that's more interested, that stands out, that you think you're going to be paying close attention to on draft day? No,
2: I'm just kind of playing it by ear, going with everything. You know, I'm hearing stuff in in every direction.
1: So I recently spoke to Florida State safety Derwin James. He said he put himself in each of the various uniforms in the Madden game. Have you done the same? I have done
2: that. (laughs) You know, Madden is my game. I play Madden all the time. You know, um, it it actually teaches me a lot about the game as well because they run a lot of similar plays that we run in the actual league. And um, I just feel like, you know, it's just mentally, you know, preparing you for, you know, for coverages. Like, Madden is really a teaching game for football. And
1: and I'm glad we're getting into this because I saw somewhere somebody raised the concern that there's an off-field issue with Darius Geist because he plays video games. Everybody plays video games. Hey, everybody, every age, every shape, every size, everyone plays video games. When you have free time, you plug in and play video games. I play Madden. You play Madden. I don't think it's a problem, especially if it's helping you learn your craft a little bit better.
2: You know, I, I just feel like with the video game, you know, what's the big deal? You know, you, you you feel like it's a concern for a guy rather you rather him what what go out and stuff and, and party, turn up with friends, or you know, a guy that you know that'll sit home getting a playbook and, and, and or play video games. Like, is that really a type of guy that you're concerned about that, that sit home, you know, get all his work done with, uh, football-wise and then, you know, have a little free time and play a video game? <laughs> is that really the guy you're concerned about drafting?
1: Yeah, 100 out of 100 times, that's the guy I want. The guy who chooses to stay home because if you stay home, the chances of anything happening that shouldn't happen are reduced to zero. Now, the most important question, Darius, as it relates to Madden, as you cycle through the uniforms, was there one where it, it just looks a little bit better than the others and something just clicked when you saw Darius Geis wearing number five, even though you're not going to get to wear number five at the next level, you can wear number five in Madden. You see Darius Geis in that uniform, which one was it that really struck a chord for you?
2: Well, <laughs> I, I can't really answer that question, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying try- to I, it, I gotta man. try. I gotta try. I can't do that, man. You trying to get me, man? <laughs> I, I really love the effort, though. I give you that. <laughs> you hitting it? I give you that one. <laughs> hey,
1: Darius, let me try something oh, else, Mike. Uh, let, let me try something else, because th- this one's obviously a more serious topic, not as it relates to anything that you did, but it relates to something that came up during one of your prior radio interviews. You were talking to the guys at Sirius XM NFL Radio. And, and I want to clear some of this up. The, the, the comment that was made about being asked at the scouting combine, do you like men? Being asked if your mother sells herself out. Do, were those questions that actually were asked to you at the scouting combine? Or uh, was there some sort of misunderstanding that came up there?
2: Man, to be honest, bro, you know I'm, you know I'm not offended by it. You know I don't really care. You know I'm just focused on football. You know the draft next week, and that's all I'm really focused on right now.
1: I, I know, but and the reason I ask you, Darius, be, because there, there's still confusion as to whether you were asked those questions, but by teams, whether you were asked those questions in a prep session to get you ready for what may come, uh, whether you were just kind of giving an example of the kind of questions that you you thought you may be asked. Um, and I, and, and, and since I have a chance to talk to you and I don't know when we're going to cha- get a chance to talk again, I just wanted to clear up for everyone. Were you actually asked those questions by a team?
2: Well, I cleared those up when I talked to security guys. So, you know, that, that's all that matters. You know, I don't care who on the outside, you know, things, this and that, you know, I cleared it up with the guys that I needed to clear it up with.
1: You mean people from the NFL? Yes, sir. Did, how many times did they talk to you about this?
2: A few times.
1: And you think in your mind it's all cleared up, it's all taken care of, and it's all settled?
2: My phone isn't ringing about it anymore.
1: <laughs> well, that's fair. Although I am asking you about it, and I have a, I have a feeling that you may get asked about it again by someone else in the future. It's just, it's something that that is still kind of hanging out there because people have been asked that question in the past. And there's an argument made. It's not an appropriate question for incoming football players or any employees to be asked. All right, uh, Darius, um, I wish you all the best as you get ready for the start of your NFL career, whatever uniform you hope to wear. I hope that's the one you get to wear after next Thursday night when the draft commences. Thanks for some of your time. We look forward to talking to you down the road.
2: Thank you so much, man. I appreciate you.
1: That was Darius Geis. Thanks to him for a little bit of his time in advance of the draft. He will be there draft night. And I feel like the story's not over yet as it relates to the Darius Geis suggestion several weeks back on Sirius XM NFL Radio that he had been asked at the scouting combine whether or not he likes men. I could tell he really didn't want to answer I tried. And then once I exhausted that line of questioning, there really wasn't anything else to ask him about. I appreciate him doing it. He had to know he was going to be asked the questions. It still feels like there's more to that story. It also feels like there's more to the story as to why Peyton Manning didn't take Fox's offer. He's given some shifting explanations. Earlier this week, well, I'm not ready to be a critic. Now, Peyton made it clear, according to Andrew Marchand of the New York Post, who has had every NFL broadcast-related scoop, it seems like, this year, Peyton made it clear he didn't want to call games involving his brother Eli. There was even some discussion of keeping the Giants out of the Fox Thursday package to accommodate Peyton. How about that? They even talked about doing that to allow Peyton Manning to do the job. But here's what this tells me. The moment Eli retires, Peyton's in, right? If Eli's presence truly was the impediment to having Peyton take $10 million from Fox, the moment that Eli is out, Peyton is in. And I think Eli's got two years left. I don't know why Peyton didn't want to call Eli's games. I don't know what the issue is there. I still think there's something to be said for the fact that if he has designs on running a team at some point, Peyton Manning doesn't want to be in a position where he has to choose between saying what he believes and holding his tongue and not doing the kind of job that he thinks he could do. Because he knows how that job needs to be done the right way. The problem is you do that job the right way, you're going to piss some people off who you may be working with or for in the future. So maybe the Eli thing was just a way to buy a couple of years and he can see where he is then. Maybe he makes a move on moving a team by then. You know, I've suggested that once the Saints move on to a new regime, and inevitably there'll be a new regime, in New Orleans, Rita Benson, the new owner of the team. Maybe she hires Peyton to run it, and maybe she gives Peyton a chunk of it. Maybe she gives Peyton a path toward securing control at some point down the road. I don't know that Peyton's ever going to have the money to have control of an NFL franchise. You need to hold 30% of the equity, 30% of the ownership interest. As the value of these teams goes up and up and up some more, that's a lot of money. You got to be able to have cash on hand, liquid, big bag of money with a dollar sign on it. I don't know that Peyton's ever going to be able to do that, but you know what? They also allow a family to own a requisite percentage of the team It doesn't have to be one specific individual that has that 30. Maybe one of these days there's enough money in the Manning family that Peyton can pull it off. Okay, before I forget, today's PFTPM podcast also includes an interview with another player who will be at the draft next Thursday night. He is Boise State linebacker Leighton Vander Esch. Here is my discussion with him. Welcome back, and as the draft approaches, we continue to speak to some of the top prospects, specifically guys who will be at the draft when it begins Thursday night. Leighton Van Der Esch, Boise State linebacker, will be one of the 22 players there, and he joins us now. Leighton, how are you?
0: Doing awesome. Doing awesome. Just having, living a busy lifestyle right now.
1: Well, it is a busy time, and it only gets busier after the draft because they whisk you to the city of the team that picks you and the next thing you know you're at rookie minicamp and it's that many camp and it's OTAs and then you get a little bit of a break and you're on your way into your first NFL season. Is it weird for you to think that you know in a week you'll know who you're going to be playing for and as of right now you basically have no idea?
0: Yeah I think it'll be a relief actually. Uh, I mean it's, it's crazy to think that you could be living pretty much anywhere at this point uh, but It'll be it'll be a pretty big relief knowing exactly where you're going at that point. It'll be exciting.
1: And look, I know that players submit to the process because that's what it is. It's a draft. The team picks you. At any point in this process, though, have you thought, boy, it'd be nice if I got to pick where I live, where I work, who I play for, what uniform I wear, what stadium I play in? Does that ever cross your mind?
0: Um, maybe a little bit, but I mean, for the most part, I mean, you got to make a career out I of mean, I just, I mean now and you get a, bit, you get a played to, or you get paid to play football so and that's always my biggest dream so I mean wherever I end up it's a matter of fact and uh just enjoy it.
1: Takeo Spikes is a former player that I know fairly well and I thought of him when I watched an interview of you on NFL Network because I think you're the first guy since Takeo whose neck is the same size as his. is is that is that natural or is that just the product of doing every exercise possible to make your neck as stout and strong as it can be?
0: Um, a little bit of it's natural. Uh, I've always kind of had a little bit, of it, but uh, working out and, and doing stuff to do with football and obviously running around with a helmet on your head makes makes a little bit of a change. So uh, I would say it's probably about half and half.
1: Well, you were all in at Boise State, and you did well enough to get yourself in position to be attractive to NFL teams. How hard was it, though, for you, Leighton, to give up remaining eligibility at college and head to the NFL?
0: Uh, well, I knew even before the season started that I was going to be in a pretty good position to, to make the jump, and I was confident in it, too. Um, so it was just it was just taking it a week at a time, not getting too far ahead of myself, and, and just doing what I had to do to take care of business on the field on every game day on every Saturday so uh, it's uh, it was a hard decision um, to make the jump but then again I knew it was always what I wanted to do and it was it was the best position and and I was the most ready for right now that I ever have been.
1: You mentioned taking care of business on the field a lot of players entering the draft have made the business decision to forego playing in that final game, that bowl game, you didn't. You played for Boise State. Why was it important for you to play in that last game at Boise State?
0: Well, I first of all, I felt like I owed it to him, too. For one, and two, that's just I'm not gonna, I'm never gonna miss a game for that reason. Uh, that's just who I am. I'm not gonna pull out and, and miss a game for miss the last game of the season just because. Uh, just because I'm probably gonna make the jump and, and go to the NFL, that's not really who I. That's not who I am, and I. I know I owe it to my teammates and my coaches to give them one last game.
1: You know, most of the guys I've talked to make five or six visits before the draft. I see eleven visits for you in fourteen days. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's really accurate. <laughs> I've been
0: I've been so busy.
1: Have you s- turned down any or you go anywhere that anyone asks you to go?
0: Um, I've gone pretty much every place.
1: What was your favorite place heard. to visit?
0: Um, I don't know if I have a favorite. Uh, they were all pretty neat. Um, and they're all similar in the way they do, like, the structures of their visits and everything. So, I mean, uh, New Orleans was pretty cool. Uh, Baltimore was cool. I mean, like I said, they're they're all pretty close to the same. Uh, it's just locations and, and seeing these faces no matter where you go.
1: Can you rattle off all 11 without thinking about it? Do you have to refer to your notes? Uh, I'll probably
0: have to refer to my notes.
1: <laughs> which, which, ones, which ones do you remember off the top of your head?
0: Um, uh, Philly, uh, New Orleans, um, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, Detroit, um, Buffalo, uh, Arizona. Uh, I think that's – I know there's a couple more, but I can't remember.
1: You know, in part of this game, and I've been involved in it from the media perspective for several years now – You don't want to say anything publicly that could cause a problem later, like, hey, I'd really like to play for this team, and then its arch rival ends up drafting you. But in those quiet moments when you're thinking about what comes next, do you have a secret list, a top two, a top three list of teams you really want to play for?
0: Um, Yeah, you could say that. Um, But, I mean, like I said, again, it's it's what I've always wanted to do. So no matter where I go, it's going to be an absolute blessing.
1: What's the question you got most tired of answering during your various pre-draft travels? <laughs> um, Other than how Jeanette your neck get so big? I, I haven't been asked
0: that one very much, to be honest with you. Uh, uh, I don't know. I've been asked so many questions, and pretty much all of them are the same wherever you go. It'd be hard to pick out just one.
1: Well, you'll be in Dallas, more specifically Arlington, next Thursday. Will the bus be making the trip from Idaho to Texas?
0: No, Nope, not as not bad.
1: As you're sitting there in the green room before the draft, you know, one of the, one of the things about the draft that I think the NFL likes is you, you get the guys that slide a little bit and they start getting nervous. Do, do you have... Like an over/under, where you've you've looked at the full draft order and you've decided, you know what? I think the sweat's going to start gathering on the forehead if I don't get picked before this spot.
0: No, uh, I've, I haven't really thought about that. Uh, I'm pretty I'm confident in how everything's going to go down, and uh, you just got to trust that. Uh, it's not a it's not a fact of getting nervous or or this and that, it's just, you just gotta relax, whoever picks you, picks you.
1: What are your expectations about how the game changes for you when you get to the next level?
0: Well, you know, it's gonna be a lot faster, and guys are all huge and they're extremely strong, so, uh, you gotta step your game up and you gotta keep up with the with, with the level of play. Uh, and I'm gonna do everything I possibly can to do that. And, just work my butt off and, Make sure that happens.
1: Is there one specific aspect of your game that you look at personally and you say, Boy, if I'm gonna be as good as I wanna be in this game, this is something I have to get better at and I'm gonna set my mind to getting better at this?
0: Uh, probably maybe using my hands a little bit better and have a little bit better pad leverage at times. I mean with my size, uh, if so I learn to utilize that and that's my advantage. I think it's just going to set my game up even
1: more. You know, I don't know how closely you've been following NFL news and developments as you've been re- getting ready for the draft. But a few weeks ago, the league passed a rule, very general, very broad, that you can no longer lower your helmet to and initiate contact. Nobody really knows what that means. H- how, how concerned are you that this is a rule that could affect a lot of the things you do as a linebacker, especially when it comes to – Initiating contact with a ball carrier, you're told to get low, and part of getting low is getting your helmet lower. Um, have you thought much about how this could affect the way you play the game?
0: I think it's I think it's just fine. I mean, if you if you don't have a problem tackling and you tackle the correct way with your head up, you know you have nothing to worry about. But if you're a dude that tackles with his head straight down, then that's something you got to change. And I don't tackle with my head down, so. Uh, I'm not too worried about
1: it. Well, Leighton, it's been great talking to you. We wish you all the best. It's a great story. Walked on at Boise State and now on your way to possibly late round one. Who knows how high you may go. It's part of the fun of the draft. Enjoy Texas and congratulations on your success. We look forward to talking to you down the road. Awesome. Appreciate it, man. All right. Thanks to Leighton. Thanks to Darius. And instead of continuing to prattle on and on about other things that are happening today in the NFL, in part because there really isn't anything. And because there are at least 100 of the various tweets and observations from the PFTPM posse, 102 right now, my goodness. All right, let's answer some of these. At, these are questions from PFTPM posse. Wait a minute. The posse account is, is asking the questions. The snake is eating its tail. How does a potential news source first get in contact with you? Hashtag PFTPM posse. There's all sorts of different ways I can make contact with a source. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. One of the things, though, that I've realized over the last 17 years, because a lot of people in the business read the site, they know how to find me if they want to find me, and a lot of them reach out and find me. I haven't had to beat bushes and hide in bushes and otherwise do things involving bushes in order to meet sources and cultivate sources. They come to me and sometimes you develop a very good relationship, sometimes you don't. A lot of the interviews that we do face-to-face at events like the scouting combine, the league meetings, Super Bowl, etc., you get somebody's number you get in touch with them. Sometimes you hear from a little, sometimes you hear from a lot. Sometimes you have a question for them. They don't answer. Sometimes they do. A lot of times sources aren't inclined to talk about their own teams, but they will tell you things they're hearing about other teams or about other issues, about specific players. Good leads that I can then take and follow up on. But It happens in a bunch of different ways, but when you own and operate a website that a very high percentage of people in the business are paying attention to, that becomes a very valuable way to get to know more people in the business. Another one from, this is going to be weird to say this all the time, another one from the posse, the PFTPM posse. What was the tipping point for you to leave law partnership and go practice law on your own? Was it worth it? even without PFT taking off, more profitable, et cetera. Here's what happened. And this was October 17, 1999, four years to the day after my mom passed away. I had been a partner for a year and a half. What they did, and I assume that law firms still do this. A lot of law firms have converted to LLCs. The law firm I was working with was a traditional partnership at the time, First, they make you a non-equity partner, which means you're not a partner. I'm using the word equity twice now in the last five minutes. They made you a non-equity partner, which means you have the title, kind of, but you don't have anything other than the title, kind of. A non-equity partner is a non-partner. It's like an exclusive rights-free agent. You're a non-free agent, free agent. I was a non-partner partner for a year, and that's how it went. That was 1998. Late in 98, I became an equity partner and once, and I assume a lot of firms are like this. I don't think I'm talking out of school here and not that anybody cares at this point. It's been 18 years since I left, but When you're in that mode at a law firm where you're chasing partnership and you're doing everything to compete, to become a partner, and you're checking all the boxes and you're building a client base and you're working hard, you're generating hours. When you work for a firm, the hour, the billable hour is your currency and you're more valuable to the firm, the more billable hours you generate. So I was doing everything necessary to compete, 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 get to partnership, get to partnership, climb the mountain, get to partnership. And once you get there... It's like, all right, I'm here. And I was 33 at the time. And I looked around and it's like, all right, here I am. This is what I've been working for for the past several years. I made it. Now what? I'm 33, normal retirement age is 65. I got 32 years of what? What is it for 32 years? Billing hours, your currency is your time. The reward for becoming more efficient at any one task is you got to find more work to do. And I also learned once I was on the inside, there's a lot of infighting, territoriality. A lot of lawyers who thrive on fighting with others also thrive on fighting with people that they are on the same team with. And I was a big proponent. When you litigate, when you are in an adversarial process all the time, And that was what my practice was, litigation, court cases, fight, 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 fight for your client. The idea is if you have two sides fighting against each other to get to the truth, the truth is somehow going to pop out in the middle of the process. The reality is a lot of times it's a warped, bastardized version of the truth. But I can't have the fighting inside of the fortress. I'll fight everyone on the outside. I don't want to fight people on the inside. And once you become a partner, you realize, my God, there's a lot of fighting that goes on. Well, I want this associate on my specific team. Well, no, somebody else who's been here longer wants that associate assigned to this department. But what about what the associate wants? Well, that doesn't matter. Well, it does. It should. Little things like that. And for me, the tipping point, October 17, 1999, I was at work on a Sunday And that's part of the reality, too. If you want to be successful, you got to put in the hours. That means you got to put in the days. That means you got to be there Saturday and Sunday to bill hours, to make up for the hours that you don't get billed during the week. And God forbid you take a vacation because then you got to find 40 extra hours somewhere else to make up for that week so you can stay on track for that never ending conveyor belt of hours, 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 hours. I was at work on a Sunday and somebody came in with some concern about some petty, stupid little thing. And it hit me at that point. Why am I doing this? I don't want to be involved in management of a law firm. I don't have to worry about these stupid little political matters once you're within inside the walls of partnership. I don't know. It was something I did. It was something I said. And somebody thought this and maybe it's that. And I said, you know... This is exactly why I think about leaving this place from time to time. And the moment those words came out of my mouth, I knew in my heart that I was getting out. That was October 17, in 1999, March 1 of 2000, I launched my own firm. And I knew at the time that, you know what, I'm going to find some other businesses to get into. I don't know what, but I'm going to find something else to get into. It can't be all about practicing law and doing this grind over and over again until you drop dead or retire. It can't be. There's got to be more out there than that. June of 2000, I drifted into this business by accident almost, and that's kind of the story of how it all started. And I never would have been able to get into this business if I wasn't practicing law on my own, because if you're practicing with a firm, you, you got to work, you got to work, you got to work. I wouldn't have time to take on a hobby that grew and grew and grew into first a part-time job that generated no revenue, then a part-time job that generated some revenue, then a part-time job that started generating so much revenue. It was time to make plans to only do that. And that happened early 2006 when Sprint, out of the blue, wanted to become the presenting sponsor of the website. Maybe Sprint can be the sponsor of PFTPM podcast. I I don't think Sprint spends a whole lot on football properties anymore, but that was the moment when I knew eventually I wasn't going to be practicing law anymore. And I was not upset when, during negotiations with NBC 2009, they said, "Well, one thing we need you to do is stop practicing law." I may have said, "Well, you know, that's uh, well, that, oh, that basically is going to be a problem. You know, I have to, I have to maintain my law practice while well, I'm thinking inside." Yeah, that's an easy one. Here, take it. Boy, we're just getting started on these questions. Another one from the PFTPM Posse, appreciation for just kind of a spontaneous thing yesterday when I talked about the influence my mom had. It was her birthday yesterday. She'd have been 84. And uh, I appreciate the thoughts that people shared about that. I mean, we, we all have our motivations. And, you know, I spent a lot of time. She's been gone 20, it'll be 23 years, October 17. And you still, if your parents are still living... You, you, you don't stop thinking about them when they're gone. And I don't care how long they're gone. I mean, think of the influence that you have. And maybe for those of you who are parents, who still have your parents, I guess the lesson is you have a huge influence on your kids. When you're around them all the time, and they're hearing your voice all the time, and they're seeing the example you set all the time in everything that you do, and how you interact with people, how you talk to people, how people talk to you, how people treat you when you work, when you don't work, what you're doing, when you work, what you're doing, when you're not work, it all, it all has an impact on them, good and bad. The direct interactions with your children are just a small slice of the manner in which you influence them. You influence your children with everything you say and everything you do. And when you're gone, I think that's when it hits them harder than when you're alive. So anyway, I don't want to go back down that rabbit hole. It was emotional enough yesterday, but it's true. And my mom died October 17 of 1995. My dad died July 18 of 1998. And I probably think about both of them at some point every day. And there's probably something that reminds me of them every single day. I'm looking over here. I see my dad's wallet every day. It's sitting on my desk, my dad's wallet, intact as it was when he died. My niece found it in the room that he stayed in at my sister's house the last couple of years of his life. And she brought it a couple of years ago. Actually, she mailed it. It was in the mail. I, she had mentioned it. I'd forgotten about it. I got back from the scouting combine a couple of years ago. I was tired. I was exhausted. And I open up, this puts this package and there it was and started going through it. And that was, That was one of those moments where you break down, but it's a good cleansing kind of a cry, you know? So I put it over here on top of a thin little DVD player that I never use. Does anyone use DVD players anymore? I don't know why I even have that thing sitting there. It doesn't even have a plug in it anymore. I needed the HDMI cord for something else. It's just sitting there. I probably should just get rid of the thing. Does anyone watch DVDs anymore? I bought a 4K DVD player down in the barn a couple of years ago when we got the barn done. We never play anything on it. Everything you watch now is streamed. God, it sounds pathetic and old. Complaining about outdated technology. How about some football questions? All right, here's one that isn't football, but then we'll ask some football questions or at least answer them. From the PFTPM posse, what was your best and worst memory of working for Kentucky Fried Chicken? And remember, they could up being end up being a PFTPM sponsor that we need. Uh, okay. The best thing about working at Kentucky Fried Chicken, and this is a general memory. This was a life lesson memory. This was 16-year-old propensity to be kind of lazy and shiftless and really not like long term, goal oriented. I always did well in school. It was a very present, obvious, linear. Here's what you have to do to get an A in this class. Here's what you have to do to get an A in that class. So go get the A's. Put the time in. I always hated when people say, well, I could get straight A's too if I studied. Well, then you're a dumbass. Study. What else are you doing with your time? So, junior year of high school, a couple of my friends were getting jobs and they put the peer you get the peer pressure. Well, you should get a job too. Well, why? You're miserable. I should be miserable too. Why do I need a job? I don't need any money. I need $3.35 an hour? Why? What am I going to do with that? So, eventually I get a job. One of my friends is working at Kentucky Fried Chicken, so I get a job there. And at some point I realized in the 2 years that I worked there that felt like 20. You know, the manager, 24, 25 years old busting his ass every day. The assistant manager, a couple of years younger, busting their ass every 12-hour shifts and doing all the crap that I was doing. It's like, I'm 16 years old. You're doing the shit that I'm doing. That's your job? And look, I respect people for doing whatever they have to do, but doing that for a while, that ended up being a very positive, motivating force for me, where I realized, you know what? If you don't go to college, if you don't bust your ass, if you don't get a degree, if you don't aspire and strive, at some point in your life, you're going to settle for something and then settle in. See, that's the problem. When you settle, you eventually settle in to that existence and you find a way to make it work. You know, there are a lot of people that live in paycheck to paycheck and they're living just fine paycheck to paycheck. And there are people that need to do these jobs to keep the economy together. But you got to ask yourself, what do you want? What do you envision? How do you fit in this broader ecosystem that is humanity? And for me, it was a powerful message that, okay, you can be the manager at a Kentucky Fried Chicken, or you can strive to be something else. And there's nothing wrong in being the manager of a Kentucky Fried Chicken. There's no shame in it, but... It stinks and it smells and it's hot. And there's a safety hazard every way that you turn. And that was really the moment it crystallized for me. Because I don't know whether they're trying to indoctrinate these kids into becoming members of the Kentucky Fried Chicken Junior Management Program. But at one point, the manager of the store, nice guy, great guy, funny guy. He was saying that's what she said decades before Michael Scott. He said something to me about, oh, you know how they, you know, I started off just like you. And if you want to be a manager, yeah, you can, and boy, that that conversation scared the shit out of me. It's like, I, I'm not, that's not what I'm destined to do. That's fine for you, but no, that was when that little thing woke up. I don't know what that thing is. That thing inside of me, it's like, no, that's not going to be me. I'm going to put in the time. I'm going to put in the effort. I'm going to put in the work. I, I, I can't. I can't work here for my entire life. I cannot do it. The worst job there, and I have probably explained this before, the cracking of the chicken. They would bring shipments of boxes of chicken that would have 20 bags in each box, sometimes as many as 20 boxes. You do the math. I can't, I'm just not capable of it. And within each bag, there were two chickens that were cut up completely And you had to find in every bag the four thigh pieces. And you had to remove this extra chunk of fat that was on the inside of the thigh piece. You had to twist off the tail, which was on one of the two thigh pieces, because obviously there's not two tails. Every once in a while, I guess we would get a genetically modified two-tailed chicken, but it was either on one piece of the thigh or the other. And then you had to take the spine, the exposed cut spine of the chicken, and put it against the area below your thumb, and you had to dig the back of your hands into it and crack it open. Because if you didn't, it wouldn't fully cook through. So while someone was out there sitting in the you know, beautiful restaurant area of the KFC with a spork stabbing at that thigh piece, you're going to get squirted in the face with an uncooked kidney. So that was the worst day-to-day aspect. The best was the lesson that it taught me that if you want something more, you got to bust your ass and work for it. If you want to settle for that, fine. But that was the epiphany. That was the moment. And the worst thing was cracking that damn chicken. And then late in my tenure there, what happened was KFC sold the store because it was directly owned by Kentucky Fried Chicken. They sold it to a guy that owned a bunch of the franchises and they got away with the pre-cut chicken. They brought in a saw to cut the chicken. And when they did that, I'm out. (laughs) Whenever I leave this place, I will be leaving with all of my fingers. And I'm telling you, the moment they brought that saw in, I gave my notice and I was out. I ain't cutting on that damn thing. I'm out of here. All right. My God. Football question. PFTPM posse. The charges brought against Michael Bennett have a slight issue from a non-lawyer perspective, without being negative toward handicapped people hopefully should a physically handicapped person be a security guard at a huge event is that a legal argument hashtag PFTP impossible yeah that's not that's a, yeah, let's not go down that. It was a elderly woman who was working at the Super Bowl and I don't know whether she was paraplegic, she's disabled in some way. yeah I it doesn't matter. If you lay hands on someone no matter who they are, no matter what capacity they are, you got a problem. Now, was this all exaggerated, is embellished, is you know there's this thought that that Michael Bennett is being singled out because of some of the controversial things he said. I don't know. The court system is going to have to figure this one out. <laughs> all right, what else do we have here? Tom Curran has joined the PFTPM posse. That's good to know. Reverend Markworth, a member of the PFTPM Posse, Browns and Jets reportedly in primetime. Why? Well, look, at least it's early in the year when we're still hungry for football. I have a feeling that that Thursday night game will not be a Fox Thursday night game. There's a certain number of Thursday night games that have to be NFL Network only because NFL Network has to have exclusive games, a certain number of them to justify their subscription fee on cable and dish and et cetera. I have a feeling that week three game is not going to be Fox simulcast game. At Recliner QB, breaking down the fourth wall isn't boring as shit as you would say. It's actually quite interesting to learn how someone else does their job, unless you have my job. <laughs> Tell me about your job, Recliner QB. I'm always interested in learning how I mean, I guess. That, that's good. I feel like I'm boring you at times. This is kind of like my one hour of therapy a day where I just talk about whatever comes up and it takes me down whatever path comes out. But anyway, I'll keep that in mind. Hey, look, for whatever reason, the audience is growing. I didn't do it deliberately. I didn't shut the thing down last week as a way to artificially spark a spike in the audience. I just, it's like, is anybody listening to this? If they're not, what the hell? I ain't doing it anymore. At Brady, it's not at Brady, it's Brady at B-Flow Faux Show. I'm just going to call him Brady from now on, right? Y'all are out there. You know each other. Brady. Brady says, keep using diametrically opposed to describe things. It's my new favorite phrase. You said Jason Garrett has a fierce sailor mouth. Do you think this is good for a locker room? Look, it's just the way people talk. Life is rated R. At least as it relates to language. People curse all the time. And Dak Prescott drops F-bombs left and right. Des Bryant drops MF-bombs every other sentence, or more frequently. It's just the way it is. I don't think it's a problem. It is strange, though, because I know Tony Dungy had a strong reaction to Rex Ryan and his choice of profanities throughout Hard Knocks eight years ago. And Tony said that, you know, he wouldn't necessarily want to work with someone who speaks like that. Tony is in the small minority as it relates to profanity among coaches. Tony's the exception, not the rule. The rule is it's F this and F that and MF and F, 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 F And that's what Jason Garrett is to the point where it loses its impact. It's every other word. And it's odd to me because he had to know he was on camera. Now, a lot of the cameras are on the wall, you can tell they're not handheld. And maybe at some point you just get numb to it. But for a guy who every time you hear him talk when he knows he's speaking to the media, he knows he's on camera, he never even gives you the hint that he'd be inclined to talk like that. I think that's what was so jarring about it. But I don't know that it affects a team in a negative way. But there is is there, there there is an inconsistency there between the sailor mouth, and the very strong Christianity that permeates an NFL team. There's one scene where all of the offensive linemen go out to dinner every week at you know some local steakhouse, and they all locked hands and prayed before it was time to eat. And any time that Christianity is that obvious, in a sports team, in a working environment, and look, I'm a believer. I'm a Catholic. I, I never really knew the difference between Catholic and Christian. I mean, if you believe in Christ and you follow the Old and New Testament, you're all Christians. But the non-Catholic Christians, I think, have a different view of the Catholics than the I look at the Protestants. We're all we're all Christians, anyway. I think about the people who just aren't Christian. Because I don't think Christ would want to exclude people who feel differently. And you necessarily exclude when you weave Christianity into a football team. And that happens a lot. And that makes me uncomfortable because it has to make the people who aren't Christian uncomfortable. And when you make that point, people say, why do you hate Christians? No, that's not the point. The country doesn't have an official religion. No team should have an official religion. And one reason that it makes me uncomfortable, this comes back to my law practice. If you wrap yourself in this notion that you want good Christian men on your team, that means you don't want non-Christians. That means you're discriminating against people on the basis of their religion and their religious beliefs. And if you're choosing between a couple of free agents undrafted, and all things are equal, and you want the guy who's a Christian as opposed to the guy who isn't, that's a per se violation of the civil rights laws of every state in the country and of the federal government. But when you hear that Christianity get so heavily immersed in all things football, and then you hear F this and F that and F that and F that, it's just a weird, it's a weird inconsistency. Although I will say this, I don't think it's a sin to use the F word i don't it's a vulgarity but you're not taking the lord's name in vain that's something i try to never do but i don't think there's anything wrong with saying the f-word i don't think it's morally deficient it's definitely not a sin not in my view maybe i'm wrong but i'd hate to think i'm going to hell because i didn't think the f-word was sinful used in the context of an exclamation, something that allows you to release some steam. It makes you feel better when you're upset. It reduces your stress level when you let it fly. I don't think there's a problem with that. Now, you don't want to be doing it in front of little kids. But anyway, the whole thing surprised me with Jason Garrett. And it'll be interesting to see what the widespread reaction is once that comes out. I think it's coming out next week. At one point, I thought it was June, but this year, I think they accelerated. I think they realized it's better to get it out while people are still kind of paying attention to football. In June, we're really not paying attention. Reverend Markworth asks, any team you think should have the most primetime games? It's always the Cowboys. Look, coming from somebody who works for a network, it's the Cowboys. Good, bad, or otherwise, the Cowboys put asses in the seats and eyeballs on the screens. Whether you love them, whether you hate them, America's team. They draw like no one else. And if there wasn't revenue sharing, if there wasn't what amounts to an illegal antitrust operation, when the NFL sells all of its TV rights together, if every team did its own rights, if the Cowboys did a Notre Dame type of a deal, they would make all the money. They would make more on their own than every other team combined. That's what a draw the Cowboys are. At the Impact 99, with the NFL playing so many games abroad, are they eventually working toward a Super Bowl or a Pro Bowl in a different country? Pro Bowl in a different country is an intriguing concept, although I think they've settled this thing in to Orlando, at least for now. Remember, it was in the Super Bowl city a couple of times. I went to one in Miami, and I think in Arizona it was there once. The Super Bowl is never going to be played in a different country. And people go nuts at the mere suggestion of it. And I don't want to say never, because never is a long freaking time. 99.9% of football fans are watching the thing on TV. As long as it looks the same on TV, it's the Super Bowl. But man, American football fans lose their shit when you bring up the possibility of the Super Bowl being played in London. So I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think the NFL likes to let a random executive leak it from time to time. I think they like the idea of people in London being fascinated by a team being there, by a, the Super Bowl being there, but I don't think it's ever going to be there. And we're still only at four games that are played in other countries, four out of 256. And I really do think and this is a topic for another day. I really do think that at some point the regular season is going to be expanded. And if it goes to 17 games, that allows for a full week of games, not all at once, but a full slate, 16 games that can be played wherever, played on neutral sites, either abroad or domestically. I've argued for years, look, until you're ready to have 16 games that you stage in other countries, you go to 17 and you have 16 neutral site games where you play a game at Ann Arbor. You play a game at Notre Dame. You play Steelers Eagles at Penn State Stadium. You get into issues like selling alcohol because some of these colleges you can't you can't sell alcohol, although that's changed over the years as well because there's too much money to be made. Soon you'll be able to sell alcohol at college games and gamble on the college games and gamble on whether the next play is a run or a pass or that field goal is missed or whether it's shanked or whether whatever whatever. All right. What else do we have here? The Impact 99. Does Des Bryant really believe it when he says Garrett guys got him forced out of Dallas? Is that him? Is that him being mature? Is Bryant believing that a sign of maturity? I I don't think that cynicism is a sign of immaturity. I think it's normal to externalize blame. It's never about anything we did as you process when something bad happens to you. It's not something I did. It's something someone else did. That's human nature. I don't think that Des is sufficiently mature that he understands that and realizes that when he thinks that or says that, he's giving into that aspect of human nature, which forces us to find reasons other than us for things that happen. It's not because I lost a step. It's not because I can't jump as high as I used to. It's not because I'm not as good as I used to be. Somebody was out to get me. Somebody. And I saw this all the time when I was practicing law. If a lawyer loses a case, it's not my fault. The judge is stupid. The jury is a bunch of incompetence. The system is corrupt. It's all rigged. If I win, hey, I won. It was me. If I lose, well, it's rigged in some way against me. Someone else is out to get me. It has nothing to do with my own deficiencies. It's because somebody else screwed me. And I think Des just gave into that aspect of human nature. I think as time passes, maybe he'll realize that 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 may be an overstatement. And the bottom line is this. Jason Garrett's the coach. You either do things the way he wants or you don't. He is going to tend to favor the guys who do things the way he wants them to be done. There's a point where they're honoring Jason Witten for his years of service and his year of doing things the way that Jason Garrett wants them to be done. Garrett breaks down. Garrett gets emotional over it. So, I think this is true in any business. Whoever the boss is, if you do things the way the boss wants them to be done, you become one of the boss's guys and or gals. And if there's somebody out there who is consistently resisting and pushing back and questioning for the sake of questioning and making life harder, primarily through emotional reaction, irrational emotional reaction. I'm not saying Des did that all the time, but watch All or Nothing. He was a constant source of concern. He was somebody that they always felt like they had to tiptoe around. As long as that person is a high performer, you will find a way to tiptoe around them. The moment that they are not performing at the level they were performing at, you will no longer tiptoe around them, whether that's Des Bryant or Richard Sherman or anyone in between. I think that's just human nature on both sides. It's human nature to blame the Garrett guys. And you know what? It's human nature for Garrett to prefer the Garrett guys and to maybe when you're no longer getting the value that you once were out of the non-Garrett guy, the non-Garrett guy ends up being a non-employee of the team. I think I went full circle on that. I think both halves of those, that answer. I think they were diametrically opposed, Brady. I don't know. Black 88 elite. If the Giants shore up their offensive line and grab a running back, will they make the playoffs? I'm not going to guarantee anything, but I know this. Last year, five teams that didn't make it in 2016 made it in 2017, which means five teams that did make it in 2016 didn't make it in 2017. So they can turn it around. And I think Saquon Barkley is the ingredient. If he's the real deal, if he has an Adrian Peterson style impact, on that offense, if your offensive line isn't good enough to buy your quarterback time, a great running back will tend to buy your quarterback time. Eli Manning, Saquon Barkley, Odell Beckham Jr., Sterling Shepard, Evan Ingram, Des Bryant, that would be a compelling offense. At Black 88 Elite, do you think the Browns will once again screw up their draft picks? Look, I made that comment during one of the episodes of Football Night in America. I think it was the Saturday edition. When we had the Packers-Vikings game, I said to Dan, well, you know, whatever it is, the Browns are probably going to screw it up. Oh, the Browns were not happy with me. They were not happy. It's like, listen, you're winless. I think I got an email like, oh, that's real classy. It's like, that—that's that, your, that's your opener? You guys have won one game in two seasons, and you're going to criticize somebody who pokes a little bit of fun at the fact that you're inept? Prove me wrong, and I think they will. But, you know, if you're a Browns fan, you have to be worried that they're going to screw this up. Until they don't screw it up, you're going to worry that they're going to screw it up. And this talk about two quarterbacks, taking two quarterbacks, whether it's number one and number four, or first round, second round, first round, third round, whatever. If I'm a Browns fan, I'm thinking they're, they're just destined To pick the wrong guy. They're destined. Because it's not random. With the Browns. They find a way to not even benefit from that randomness that should. From time to time. You spin that wheel and you get lucky. Every time the Browns spin the wheel. It ends up bad for them. And if I was a Browns fan I'd be. I'd just be resigned to it by now. Well here we go. How are we going to screw it up this time? And if they don't great. But how can you expect fans who have been beaten down for a generation of ineptitude to truly have hope that they're not going to screw it up this time? But you know what? My niece, Browns fan, she was ready to give up, but she's back all in again. I think deep down she's worried they're going to screw it up, but maybe this time they won't. How long does that last, that feeling of maybe this time they won't? But you know what? Maybe this time they won't. Black 88 Elite, do you believe that with the decreased role of kickers, the job of kicking and punting will be given to one person instead of two? Seeing that usually a kicker at one point was punting in his career. You know, Pat McAfee at one point had designs on succeeding Adam Vinatieri as the kicker in Indianapolis after Vinatieri retired. The problem is McAfee ended up retiring before Vinatieri did. McAfee was the kicker initially at West Virginia. I think he eventually was doing both. So look, even though it's a different motion, if you got a strong leg, if you got a boomstick, as McAfee calls it, whether you're kicking it off the ground, kicking it off of a tee, dropping it and punting it, if you're reasonably athletic and you have a strong leg, you can find a way to do both. I don't know that there's ever going to be a team that puts all eggs in one basket. Because if they get rid of the kickoff, and they replace it with that fourth and 15 play, you still got to punt. Now, your punter ends up taking on more relevance than your kicker, but your kicker is still the guy who's making the field goals. I mean, right now, it's kind of like the kickoff specialist position is a swing job between the punter and the kicker. Sometimes the kicker does it, sometimes the punter does it. Well, now, essentially, on every team, the punter is going to be the kickoff specialist, and the kicker is still going to be the kicker. So I I don't see those two independent jobs going away. You'd have to be somebody who is damn good to do both of them. And then they'd have to be willing to take on the risk that you get injured, you're screwed. The best thing about having a punter who can kick or a kicker who can punt is if one gets injured, the other one can do the job. If you've got a guy who does both and he gets injured like Dan Bailey did last year for the Cowboys, you're screwed. Of course, the Cowboys were screwed because their punter couldn't kick. Jeff Heath ended up doing some kicking. At Eric Rudd, what was your legal mind's reaction to the Southwest Airlines disaster? How would you approach the case if you were the family's lawyer? Thanks for keeping PFTPM going. You know, look, I don't know that I should go down this path because it only happened a couple of days ago. I don't think that there's any question that Jennifer Riordan's family... Number one, would trade all the money in the world to have their wife and mother. You know, when you practice law for a living, you dabble nonstop in worst case scenarios that have played out for people. One of the reasons I didn't like doing injury cases, two reasons. First, I didn't like taking a percentage of money that people truly deserved and that they likely were going to get anyway. If you err on the side of taking good cases, it's not a question of whether or not you're going to prevail. It's a question of how much you're going to get. And I know a skilled lawyer can justify his or her fee by getting even more. And maybe you get so much more that it covers your fee. But I didn't like the idea of taking 25, 30, 33% of a chunk of money that's made available to compensate someone for something bad that happened to them physically. Somebody lost their job. That's different because when that happens, you got to fight to prove that the employer was wrong. Cause they're going to deny it and deny it and deny it and deny it. And you got to fight and you got to fight and you got to fight some more to get them $1, much less a million dollars. But in an injury case, I, I didn't like the idea of, well, this is clear. This wasn't the person's fault. Something bad happened to them. They're now dead or seriously injured. And Oh, it's just a matter of making a few phone calls and I'm going to get 25. I didn't like that. I didn't like that. And the, the best injury case I ever had was one where I had to bust my ass and look through a stack of documents and find that needle in the haystack. And that changed everything. And in that case, I, I was proud to take my fee because I felt like nobody else could have did what I did. I'm probably wrong. There's probably plenty of others that could, but the family couldn't have done it on their own. That's for damn sure. And like five or six other lawyers had rejected the case before I decided to rub the lamp and see what happened. So anyway, I didn't like that feeling that I was I was taking money away from the family of the person who was grievously injured or the person himself or herself. Also, it's just too emotional. It's too emotional. It's hard enough when you're representing somebody. There was one woman I represented who got fired on her 25th anniversary at a nursing home she had worked at. And every time I met with her, every time the topic came up, she broke down and cried. That wore that war on me. That stirs your emotions, and when it's somebody who's terribly injured, when they're dead, when they're disfigured, when it's scarred, whatever the it, it just it just it, it's it's too much. The business is hard enough without the the emotional attachment that happens when when you're dealing with clients who were perfectly fine until this one bad thing happened. So, with all that said, in this case, in a case like this, there's nothing that Jennifer Riordan did wrong. The question is who ends up compensating. The family and how much? Is it whoever did the work on the engine that failed? Is it whoever designed the engine? Because apparently there's a casing that was supposed to hold the parts if there was a failure of the jet engine in service. That failed as well. So you had a failure of the engine, you had a failure of the casing. How much of that is the responsibility of Southwest Airlines? How much of that is the responsibility of whoever they retained to do that work? And it could just be that the litigation arising from this disaster, the compensation is going to be the result of a fight between Southwest and whoever did that engine repair, that engine service, whoever designed the engine, the casing, they're going to fight it out. That's the best case that you can have from a lawyer standpoint because you just sit back and you let all the lawyers for the various defendants fight it out among themselves because there's nothing that the victim did wrong here. Now, plenty more victims than just the person who died. And this is where it can get controversial and this is where people will complain about the legal system, but everybody on that plane was a victim of a serious emotional trauma. They spent a period of time thinking they were going to die. And people directly involved in trying to save the woman who was sucked out of the plane, partially sucked out of the plane, and then they spent time trying to revive her. They went through something that they're never going to forget. It's going to haunt them for the rest of their lives, most likely. That's something that, but for the negligence, the carelessness in the design, the maintenance, et cetera, that jet engine, that's something those people shouldn't have had to deal with. And they are entitled to compensation for that. So, that that's all that needs to be said about that for now. But yeah, look, fortunately there aren't many cases like that anymore. It's the first passenger who died on an American airline in 9 years. There was a regional jet that crashed in Buffalo in 2009. There hasn't been a major airplane crash in the US since 2001. Remember the jet that crashed, I think it was Long Island right after takeoff, that's it. Air travel has gotten safer and safer and safer. And if you haven't read the book Outliers, you should. I sound like Kenny Banyan now. You should. Do you work out? You should. You should read Outliers because there's a chapter in there that talks about how an airplane is now basically as reliable as a toaster. And when there's a crash, typically it's because of a multitude of things that go wrong and they all combine together. And the one common ingredient is poor communication. And the fascinating part of that chapter, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who reads it, but the extent to which culture in different countries impacts the ability of the people who are responsible for the plane to properly communicate when there is something that needs to be said. Sometimes there's something that needs to be said, and some cultures cause those things to be said in a very direct and subtle way. Instead of, hey! Whoa. That's a mountain right there. I think we should avoid it. But as it relates to the equipment, the plane itself, the plane itself very rarely has a problem, but that's what happened on on Tuesday, a serious problem with the plane, obviously. And one of the reasons why that plane didn't crash is because the pilot was able to deal with that situation and not turn one mistake into two, three, four, five, six crash. At Sham God, no way Dez will acquiesce to a $6 million a year contract in spite of the Cowboys while also willingly having less targets with New York Giants. You mean despite the Cowboys? I'm sorry. Let me try that again. There's no way Dez will acquiesce to $6 million a year to spite the Cowboys while also having less targets with the Giants. I mean, that's the question that Dez has to ask himself. Do I want to catch as many passes as possible? Or do I want to play a team that's going to compete directly against the Cowboys and keep the Cowboys out of the playoffs? Am I taking it so personally that I will put my own personal goals and objectives behind the broader objective of sticking it to the Cowboys? I think Dez should look for the best spot for him with a quarterback who will throw him the football even when he appears to be covered, who can throw it accurately when he appears to be covered. That's what I think Dez should aspire to do. Whether that means playing for the Ravens, who don't face the Cowboys this year, or any other team that either isn't in the NFC East or doesn't play the Cowboys at all. That's what he should try to do. And I don't know that it's going to be good for him to go to the Giants. Because I don't think he's going to end up getting anything close to the number of targets and catches and touchdowns that he would get Somewhere else, or money either. The problem is he hit the market so late. There's no clear spot where you say, "Hey, Des walks right through the door and he's the number one option." At o two three five nine Raider, what are you hearing on a Khalil Mack extension? Are they far off? Could he hold out? Keep bringing it. I will keep bringing it. Although you may not like this answer, I think this is going to get ugly with Khalil Mack. He's represented by Joel Siegel, who once held out Chris Johnson for all the training camp, all the preseason. He got what he wanted. I think the fascinating question here, who goes first between Mac and Aaron Donald? Because once one guy goes, the other guy's going to try to get more. And I think Mac would like to wait and see what Donald gets. And then Mac maybe tries to get more. Both guys entering the final year of their rookie deals. Both were first round picks in 2014. Mac fifth overall. Donald taken out of the top 10. So he gets less this year. Max making more because in the top 10, that fifth year option is based upon the transition tag for the position you play the prior year. Below that, it's not the top 10. It's not the average of the top 10. It's like two through 29 or something like that. So I think this could result in a holdout. Aaron Donald held out all of last year until the day before the start of the regular season. And he only won the NFL's defensive player of the year award. At Ebonculus, surprised by the radio silence about Jake Cutler on both fronts, either to fill a quarterback hole or the Fox booth. And I don't know that they'd consider him for Thursday night at Fox. I think there's a chance that we hear at some point over the next few weeks that Cutler is just going to go into that booth he was going to be in last year. It was a three-man booth. Cutler left. It became a two-man booth. Now Cutler can go back in. And I think Fox would want him. I don't see why Fox wouldn't want him. It's not like they hired some other former quarterback to take that job. Thursday Night Football, I don't think that's where Cutler makes his broadcasting debut. And there's no quarterback hole to fill. I mean, last year there were far fewer free agent quarterbacks and nobody wanted Cutler. This year nobody wants Cutler in part because anybody who wanted a quarterback was able to go sign one in free agency. I think the only way Cutler comes back this year is if Tannehill rips up his knee again. And This year when that happens, they may have a rookie they put in. They're sure putting out the smoke signals that they're thinking about making a play for Baker Mayfield. Some think maybe Josh Rosen. So I don't think there's going to be a spot for Cutler anywhere this year. I remember being fascinated last year that if Teddy Bridgewater had suffered his knee injury a year later and Cutler was available, would the Vikings have wanted him? Adam Gase wanted him because he had worked with him, and they'd work well together. Last year, it didn't work all that well. I think Cutler's done. I personally think he's done. At Jmart2075, in here for PFTPM, thank you. The great Corn Florio, I don't know how I feel about that. I like the avatar, though. Beavis as Cornholio. Who has a bigger impact this year, Alvin Kamara or Dalvin Cook. Also, when will the PFTPM t-shirts be available for under a thousand dollars? I'm joking about the thousand dollar shirt. It's actually nine hundred ninety nine ninety five. Hey, you want to prove your membership? You want to prove your loyalty? That's one hell of a way to prove it. Although I don't, I don't think they'll be quite that expensive. They'll be closer to nineteen ninety five than nine hundred ninety nine ninety five. I think Dalvin Cook has the bigger impact. Although John Filippo, the new offensive coordinator, comes from a team that was using. Multiple running backs. They have Latavius Murray still. He did well last year, although the thing about Latavius Murray, I mean, maybe this new helmet rule won't affect him because he runs upright. He's a football player who runs like a foosball player, straight up and down. And he either gains eight yards or he just goes down like a Jenga tower. He does not get small. And maybe that's going to be the key to being a successful running back moving forward, depending upon how they apply this helmet rule. But I still think Cook because you've got Kamara and Mark Ingram in New Orleans. And Cook was phenomenal until that non-contact ACL tear. So if he's healthy, I say Cook. I definitely say Cook. I think that Cook would have been the offensive rookie of the year if he hadn't torn his ACL. Then again, Deshaun Watson would have been the the NFL's offensive rookie of the year if he hadn't torn his ACL. At Arm 55, which team do you see becoming the new lead dog in the AFC once Tom Brady eventually retires? That's a good question. That means I don't have an answer. Quarterback-driven league. Will it be the Texans? Will they step up? Will it be the Browns if they get the quarterback position right? It's going to be a quarterback-driven situation. Because I want to say the Steelers, but how much longer is Ben Roethlisberger going to play? And they went 20 years between Bradshaw and Roethlisberger. If they don't have a good plan for a new quarterback, they're going to be not as as significant as they were. That's why I think all these AFC East teams, other than the Patriots, are looking for a franchise quarterback because they know now's the time to get him and groom him, and then he's entering the front end of his prime when Brady retires. So I think it's a team we're not thinking about. It may be the Chiefs if Mahomes works out. You got a lot of young quarterbacks who can get it done. And the balance of power shifts once one generation of franchise quarterbacks goes away. Another one from Ed Arm 55 which team do you see most likely to make a surprise pick and or trade in this year's draft? I I don't know. I could see the Cowboys trade up. I could see that happen. And I'm influenced by the fact that I just watched All or Nothing and saw them contemplating a trade up for Paxton Lynch. They knew that Dak Prescott was the other alternative when they didn't trade up for Paxton Lynch. That's confidence, that he's going to be there like in round four when you're deciding whether to trade up back into round one to get Paxton Lynch. But I think Jerry Jones is willing to do what he has to do to improve the team to make it win now. He wants to win now. Each year, in his mind, is potentially the last year, and he's very aware of the fact that he's getting older. We're all getting older, but you get to a point, and he made that comment before. I only got so many of these chances left. Gears of Ted... Do you think the schedule expanding to 17 or 18 games will ever realistically happen? If so, how would the 17th and 18th opponents on each team's schedule be determined? Second part of the question, that's great. That's a great question because right now it's a very simple formula. You play every team in your division twice. You play every team from one other division in your own conference once. You play every team from a division in the other conference once, and then you play... To fill out the schedule, there's two games left from the other two divisions in your conference where you don't play every team. You play the team that finished in the same spot that you did. So the difference between first, second, third, and fourth place in the division comes down to two games. You add another game or two. I don't know what that means. I don't know how you figure that out. Do you play two teams who finished first in their divisions in the other conference? If you finish first in yours? Is that how they do it? Do you have a wild card game every year? Maybe it's a natural rivalry, a geographic rivalry, somebody from the other conference, You pick up another conference game if it's not part of your regular interconference rotation? That part of it's not going to be easy. I still think at some point we will see 17 or 18 games. I think we will. And keep this in mind. I'm not reporting it. I'm just telling you, keep this in mind. Get ready for this concept. Don't be surprised if it gets resurrected. And this first came up, I think, during the lockout, when they were talking about expanding the regular season. At some point, Roger Goodell was asked a question about the possibility of 18 games coupled with a limit of 16 total regular season games per player. You throw that element on top of it. That the coach has to decide which two games the backup quarterback will play. Which two games the backup kicker will play. Although I'd like to think kickers and punters would be exempt. And maybe quarterbacks will be exempt as well. But I got to start running back, which two games will he not play? I got to start pass rusher, which two games will he not play? Now, a lot of it will take care of itself because you have a guy who's injured. All right, this is going to be the game he otherwise would miss. You're still going to play 16 games. But you know what? That covers up the reality that a lot of these guys aren't playing 16 games because of a hamstring pull, because of a shoulder injury. Now what you're doing is guys who would have been playing 14 games or 13 games or whatever the case may be, they're going to pick up two extra games that they're going to be healthy enough to play. Because injuries naturally give guys less occasion to suffer concussions or subconcussive brain trauma. I don't know how how obvious that twist to the argument will be when the time comes. I think that this is an issue that may come up within the confines of the next CBA. Because you got to get the union to agree to this, and what better way to get them to agree to it when you're engaging in a broader contract negotiation, but I don't think the NFL has put to rest the 17 or 18 game concept. We have heard less about it because the NFL realizes it's impossible to reconcile player safety with playing extra games. And the one way to do it is say, well, okay, fine. The maximum number of games any player can play is 16. So the season really isn't expanding. It is, but it isn't. I'll take a couple more questions. At Schneid the Glide. How true do you believe Todd McShay's report that it's a lock Saquon Barkley is going number two to the Giants? I don't think he quite said it that strongly. I don't think it's a report. I just think he believes that that's what's happening. Now, I think Albert Breer suggested Barkley could slide because of the concept that you can find running backs in later rounds of the draft. Just look at Alvin Kamara, for example. I I think he's going to be number two, but Who knows what the Giants are going to do? Dave Gettleman has no reason to put his cards on the table. Maybe Gettleman could trade down a few spots and still get Saquon Barkley. But remember this, last year Gettleman used a top 10 pick on a running back. A running back that wasn't really a a workhorse. I'm a firm believer if you use a top 10 pick on a running back, he better get the ball 25 times a game. Christian McCaffrey did not have that kind of an impact. He was more of a passing game running back than a running game running back. Schneid the Glide wants to know what's my favorite cigar to smoke. My go-to continues to be the Monte Cristo Cuban Double Edmundo. Although I still only smoke those on what feels like a special occasion. I got a range of, I don't know, four or five different ones that I like. The acid that has like that, that infusion. The Cuba Cuba, the deep dish. It's got that sweetness to it. It's like, it reminds me of... Back in the days when we'd go fishing and someone had a can of Gold River. It was that tobacco that had a little bit of a, a sweet taste to it. The the Javas. The coffee flavor. We got some cherry Javas where it's got a little cherry hint to it. Then there's the short stories. The, the Hemingways. 15, 20 minute smoke. I try to only do two a week. And I've stuck to that for the past few years. Two a week, that's it but that, that's the range. It depends on what kind of mood I'm in. It depends on how long I'm going to be down in the barn. Depends on how long it's been since I had one. If it's been like a week, week and a half, I'll pull out one of those big, giant torpedo, big, huge, not, because to, torpedo is a specific type. I, I, I'm i still learning all the terms. I just grab a cigar out of the humidor and smoke it. People know all these different tombs, uh, these terms. The Churchill is the big, giant one. I will get one of those from time to time. At RevWebs219, any truth to the rumor, the PFTP and Posse will be invited to go bowling at your house with Sims. First of all, I don't have a bowling alley. There is a bowling alley nearby. And we have been going bowling once or twice a week. I, I guess we could do an open event. Anybody who wants to come to West Virginia when we go bowling, you can come go bowling with us. I don't know that you're going to be invited up to the house. If you want to come to West Virginia at an undisclosed date this summer... I'm going to keep it undisclosed for now because I don't know if this is a good idea. I remember I had a dream not all that long ago where I decided to have an event at the house and charge people admission to come just hang out at the house. Like, hey, this is a way to make a little money. Jill, you got a problem with that? Bunch of strangers coming to the house. Number one, knowing where we live and hanging out here and drinking whiskey and smoking cigars. And we don't, did I mention we don't know who any of them are? You got a problem with that? In the dream, she had a problem with it. I have a feeling that that would not be a... Maybe an off-site get-together? Bringing people that we don't know to the house? Probably not something that I'd be able to finagle all that easily. Gears of Ted, do you see there being another cold-weather Super Bowl at some point in a city like Seattle, Denver, Philadelphia, etc.? I think the NFL realized, you know what? We're not going to play Russian roulette with our signature event. They got very lucky with Super Bowl 48. It snowed a day or two before. It really snowed the day after. I remember I sat in for Dan Patrick three days after Super Bowl 48, and Tuesday or Wednesday it was a harrowing car wa- car ride from New York. It was horrible. You have that stuff happen the day of the game. That's not good for anybody. That's no good for the people trying to get there, for the people trying to get home, for the people trying to, you know, enjoy the experience that they've spent thousands for out in the elements, miserable. I I don't think they're going to do it. And now that they're not using other cities to leverage the best possible deal for a Super Bowl, because for a while I thought, hey, you know what, this is genius. You open up the entire league and you bring in all these other cities that are putting pressure on the cities that are truly in the rotation to make the best possible bid to get the Super Bowl. They've changed that now. They're just going to go approach one city at a time and say, hey, this is what it takes to host the Super Bowl. You either want it or you don't. And the thinking is they'll say, Whatever you want, we'll do it. So I think the cold weather thing... in Pittsburgh... Pittsburgh doesn't have the hotel rooms. But I, I think that the cold weather thing is no longer a thing. Gears of Ted. Can you see there being a weird dynamic in Philly with Carson Wentz? If they never get back to or win another Super Bowl, then he'll never be able to finish the job like Foles did. Oh, absolutely. There's pressures on Wentz to do it now. Pressure's on him to be ready week one. If Nick Foles plays week, week one and plays well because Wentz isn't ready, who plays week two, who plays week three, and so on and so forth. I should probably wrap this up. Let me take one more, because I didn't know about this. I need to check this. At Matt Yvonne, what do you think of Amazon releasing the total viewers of last year's Thursday Night Football game? 18 million seems decent for a streaming primetime game. Well, a lot of times the streaming numbers are packaged and presented in a way that is misleading. That's what happened when Yahoo first did a game a couple of years ago. They tried to take digital numbers and make them sound kind of like TV numbers, but they really weren't. Average viewers per minute is the key. You can say 18 million people at some point activated the stream. What was the average viewers per minute? They may have done that. I didn't know that Amazon numbers were out there. I just assume the Amazon numbers aren't going to be great because you have to have Prime. How many people were watching on Prime? Although I see that there are 100 million Prime members. Think about that. 100 million people paying $100 a year for what? My wife's been a Prime member for the last few years, and I don't want to jeopardize the possibility of being, you know, the PFTPM podcast presented by Amazon Prime. But what do you really get for that 100 bucks? I, I mean, I guess, you know, you order stuff and it comes to your house faster and there's a benefit to that. Yeah, it's funny. My wife and I were having a conversation last night. Elder Bierman, which is a, a department store chain that has a presence at the mall here near our house, they're going out of business. We were talking about that last night and my wife said, well, it's a shame that's happening. You know, I'd go there, I'd buy this, I'd go there, I'd buy that, I'd go there. Buy so, and I said, well, if you would have done that more often, they wouldn't be closing. We're on Amazon Prime every day ordering something. It's too easy. And I know that that props up. And that's the thing you have to keep in mind. Tours R Us goes out of business. That's a shame. That's sad. I was sad about that. But the reality is when Tours R Us came to town all those years ago, it put some locally owned toy store out of business. And they did that coast to coast. Walmart, same gig. They put all the small businesses out of town. So now Amazon's going to put these businesses out of town because all you got to do is grab your phone, press a button, it shows up. Unless you need it right now, unless there is some specific reason, That you need it right now. If you can wait a day or two, here it is. I use it all the time, and it does prop up some other segment of the economy. The people who drive the things around, the delivery people, it's jobs for them. The people who make the packages, it's jobs for them. Now, the problem is a lot of those jobs aren't local jobs, but my goodness, well, the delivery drivers are. My goodness, how convenient. I never run out of shaving cream. Every few months, order three cans. I never have to worry about waking up one day and not having shaving cream, which would happen from time to time. Admit it. There've been times where you just out of shaving cream, you forgot to buy it. So you had to shave your face with hot water and nothing else. And it hurts like hell with Amazon. Thank you. I, that'd be the pitch for the PFTPM podcast presented by Amazon prime. You'll never have to shave your face with only hot water again. And on that note, Enjoy the schedule release. We'll have it all broken down at profootballtalk.com. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. This probably was the longest one ever, but uh, we got to do something about that moving forward. Also tomorrow, we may have, we will have David Johnson. I think we have Josh Allen on the PFTPM podcast tomorrow. So tomorrow, less me talking, more others talking. Thanks for listening to my talking. We'll talk again tomorrow